0: Today's guest is Jake Lemmon, Senior Vice President of Development of the Yukon Foundation. Yukon's fundraising operation has been transformed since Jake arrived in 2016. And he shares the importance of balancing innovation with no-nonsense development principles in pursuit of Yukon's record-breaking results. Jake also shares why he's so passionate about gift planning and why you should be too. Here we go. Greetings, RAISE listeners. I am thrilled to welcome uh, Jake Lemon to today's uh, episode and we've known Jake for a long time. He currently serves as Senior Vice President of Development for the Yukon Foundation. And in that role, Jake oversees planned giving corporate and foundation relations, constituent health and athletic fundraising programs. Uh, and I know that you're going to enjoy hearing about Jake's journey. Welcome, Jake.
1: Thanks, Brent. Glad to be here um a little jealous that you're you're hopping in the rv and the the work from anywhere but uh own it um i'm 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 jealous Uh, you've just given me an idea
0: we'll see how it goes um we uh my colleague laura really wanted Evertrue branding all over my family's rv to turn it into some kind of college tour but we're gonna have to table Uh, that until the fall at least um i i want to start by just learning of Beijing, that in the midst of a crazy period here in 2020 you all just wrapped what is a record breaking year from a revenue perspective at UConn. I want to acknowledge that my understanding is almost 90 million dollars raised up from a prior high of the the low 80s um, and I think some of that is uh, it sounds like due to a strong start but also being able to persevere and get through some challenging times. So we're going to dive into all of that but I want to start by, by congratulating you. Thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. I first want to go back to the Magnolia State and young Jake Lemon, uh, who there's just no way he anticipated growing up outside of Jackson, Mississippi, that he, he his lifelong aspiration would be to get up to the Northeast. And I just know that's not how it works in elementary school in uh, in Mississippi. So give me a little bit of uh, the setup of, of who you were uh, and what led you down this path uh, of, the, of the world of higher education advancement?
1: Sure. So uh, you're right. You know, having plans to move to, to New England and lead a development division at UConn probably was not, you know, in, in the cards many years ago. But I did grow up in uh, Central Mississippi. Uh, I'm an old Miss grad, uh, undergrad and graduate degree. And I had a, had a pretty strong background in financial planning, financial advising, uh, heavy finance MBA, and I thought my path would be uh, financial planning, a wealth advisor. And, and I, I started that path and realized very quickly that, you know, I just didn't like it. I mean, it's a great profession and, and it's, a, it's a much needed profession. Uh, I, it, it wasn't fulfilling to me. And so I, I stumbled into major gift fundraising, started Ole Miss for a, a short time. Uh, I I was an athlete into college, and so I felt like, well, maybe uh, athletic development would be my path, and so spent about three years at UAB uh, as an athletic development professional, and it was a great growth experience, but always wanted to go back to that financial planning expertise, and gift planning was just a passion of mine, and thought I probably need to chase that passion, and I did, and there was a job open at at Florida State, and um, that was really where I basically launched my career. It's where I really just uh, got so involved and engaged in the industry and the impact. Spent uh, about seven and a half years there, sort of moving up the chain, started in gift planning, and and was able to create regional development, was able to create what principal gifts looked like at Florida State, and staff the president through a campaign. It was a great time, and um, I was just at a stage in my career, in my life, where now, I knew that I needed a stretch position somewhere uh, to to lead a division, and, and UConn's position was open. Uh, Josh Newton, who I know is engaged with with EverTrue and has been for for years, he was CEO at that time, and uh, Josh is a uh, he's a, a great uh, persuader and a, a, he's a he's a closer, and he closed me, uh, and I'm so glad he did four years ago, uh, and. You know, New England's been a great growth opportunity for me professionally, but also personally for for my family, and we've we've loved it up here. And it's uh, it, it's pretty special at the end of a fiscal year now. And our books close on seven fifteen, so five days after books closing, you know, to look up and you know not only look up during a, a traditional year, but look up at, in a year like this and see that we're you know about ten percent higher. Um, versus our historical high, uh, it was due to a a, a strong start somewhat, but also to a really, really strong close. Uh, And it's just been an experiment on uh, employee engagement and and culture and morale, uh, because in a time like this, you either go all in with that or or you see that you haven't done so enough. So uh, 15 year Mm -hmm. journey in this industry, To UConn, proud to be here and and proud to be uh, on the cast today with you, um, sharing some things about about our operation.
0: I mean, can't wait to dive into a bunch of that, but I do think it's really interesting that you felt like the financial advisory path was not the right path. And I'd love to know more about when you realized that and frankly, how you go from that realization uh to even discovering the world of of philanthropy and it is interesting you say you wanted to be a wealth advisor and i I would argue that in your role you you are and it it sounds like you've embraced that aspect of it especially in the gift planning space we can get more into that but take me back to your mindset where you know recent college grad you you do the the business school kind of uh, program you want to get into the financial space and i'm sure a lot of other people uh, you know, in your class, we're trying to do the same thing, and you can make a great living, and all of that. But, but why is it? Do you think that it just didn't click?
1: Yeah. So, great question. A um, lot, a lot of, lot of good things here. So, I guess first, what, why it didn't click? You know, I, I, I just realized early on that, you know, I, I wasn't in a position to necessarily solve a lot of problems. Of course, we could help people, and again. Um, a great industry. My father was in the industry for years and years. I have a lot of respect for it. But for me, I was seeking something that was, I guess, a little more meaningful personally. And I, I probably realized a year and probably less than a year, honestly, right? It was probably six to nine months. I realized, you know, I can keep pushing here. I can keep using grit and education to do well, you know, but doing well and being Fulfilled are, are two very th- separate things. So I did realize though that through the training that I received, I I, I realized very quickly I could get an appointment. I, I mean, I could get in front of someone. I could build rapport. I could find some sort of issue that needed resolution. I could, I could pitch the, the, the resolution and I could close a deal. And as I as I learned more about major gift fundraising, and that was actually through my MBA uh, career advisor. I went back to him and said, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not in the right place. He's the one that's sort of semi-jokingly said, I think you'd be a great major gift officer. But Back then, not a lot of people knew about this industry, but as he taught me a little bit more about it and I learned, I said, you know what? I can take those things that I learned you know, from financial advising, and I can I can really overlay them in this industry. And, you know, my, my mentality early on was just don't overthink it. I'm not going to overthink this industry. I'm gonna use the skills and the training that I had before. And, you know, year one, I, I crossed my fingers and said, I'm going to rely on those principles. And now year 15, I look up and I haven't changed those principles. I mean, of course, polished things and have learned a lot and experienced a lot more. But those core principles of, of, of production uh, have, have you know, really, really held true. So I, I do think that, you know, for people in the wealth uh, advisory business uh, who, who might look at this Field as a great fit, it, it certainly can be. And and I'm not the only yeah. one that I know who has made that transition. Um, but it is so, very, very rewarding
0: and, and looking forward to being in this career really. I mean, in this industry my entire career. I, I mean, I love the fact that you actually reached out to that undergraduate career advisor and benefited from the life cycle, uh, your own sort of full access to a lifelong uh resources and at the same time i gotta i gotta ask similarly when was it in your first uh moments in the higher education advancement field where you where you felt the opposite way to your yeah. six to nine months sort of no you weren't on the path in the financial sector was there an early moment, an early experience where you're like yes like this this is it
1: uh, without a doubt, so I would say the conviction that I had that higher ed advancement was was the right path for me was far quicker than financial advising not being my path. You know, Brent, I uh, I got a lot out of public education. I'm I'm a I'm a public school guy. Uh, from a higher ed perspective, uh, it changed me. It it opened my lens through which I view the world, um, it, it, was just, it was a transformative experience for me. And just, you know, I, I realized, I, look, I'll, I'll tell you this, I remember taking my final test of my MBA. This would have been years prior. My final test, and I'm done. And I remember, uh, I remember a sadness. I mean, I, it wasn't a celebratory to me. Hey, I was sad and I was like, what is going on? It's because I just feel at home on a, on a, a, a university campus. I, I, am uh, my values align with public higher education and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a big person about fit, you know, and feel. And when I step on a campus, I just feel united with it. I feel at peace. And so I knew really, really early on, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to go out and and you know, bust my tail in a career to make a difference and, of course, make a, a, an advantageous career for myself and my family. I wanted to do it in a space that was deeply meaningful to me. And I could not imagine uh, a better fit. And again, forever how long I continue to work, which I got a lot of years left, it will absolutely be in the higher ed space just because of that profound fit.
0: Any moments uh, early on? In that journey, either at Ole Miss or at UAB, it felt like you were able to run that play, that set of plays you described, you know, get the meeting, engage the person, understand where they're coming from, identify a solution or an opportunity and close it. I mean, was there like an early cycle where you're like, I just did that end to end? I want to do that a whole lot more.
1: Yeah. Like I said, you know, before, I, when I first got into this, I certainly wasn't opposed to taking direction, right? I mean, I'm going to take direction and coaching from from supervisors, but you know what I what I quickly realized is if I if I just focus on the fundamentals, because you know, too many people in this industry look too far out. You know, they're trying to plan on what what's it, what, what is this relationship going to look like in three months, and six months, in nine, in 12, and nine, and twelve, and I just I just decided to sort of abide by the expected outcome model. Every single touch, and you got to have a, an expected outcome. You got to work to that outcome, um, and I don't think you know we adopt that all that much in this industry. Some shops do beautifully, but I mean broadly, it's not uh, adopted as much as it, as it is in the corporate world. And so, I mean, as far as I can remember, Brent, I, I always went back to those fundamentals, and still do today. And I share that with people. If I'm fortunate enough to be able to have an onboarding presence with a new development professional, which I always love doing, no matter how large our shop gets. I, I like that. I try to instill in that. I think it, I think it builds a sense of confidence, a, a sense of comfort, kind of relieving anxiety that, you know, you're going into this office building to sit down with that prospect today. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to think two years from now, what what's the principal gift ask going to be? Just have an expected outcome. Do it. Come back to home base. Strategize, plan, and do
0: it again. And that's so. Certainly what's for what's you. an it's example? My teams. What's an example of that expected outcome
1: model? And
0: and really. Uh, You obviously have a point of view about when that doesn't happen and what a visit or conversation like that could look like versus how you would approach it based on your experience. And so if, if I were one of your officers and you were coaching me, what's an example of how I might be conducting a meeting without that expected outcome approach and what kind of coaching and feedback might you give along the way? Yeah, you know,
1: so I, I think the, 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 the qualification visit probably fits the best here. That first visit, you know, we statistically know that someone is, is someone we should know, and whether that's through data science or whether it's through, you know, a pipeline from, you know, leadership giving up to major and principal gifts. But that, that, that qualification visit fits perfectly because, you know, if you don't have, The absolute expected outcome of going in and I I heard someone say this the other day, I used to say being tastefully aggressive, but I heard someone else in the industry say gracefully aggressive, and I'm going to steal that. I'm not going to say tastefully aggressive, but being gracefully aggressive in saying, I am going to find out today whether or not you and I prospect should, should dance From from an engagement and major gift standpoint, whether or not you are open to the conversation, making absolute certain from my perspective that that prospect knows exactly what I do. And what I've always said to, to first time development professionals is if you walk into a qualification meeting and you have your 45 minutes with this prospect in a cafe, in an office or Zoom for this at this point in time. But if you were to do that development professional, you left that office after your 45 minute meeting and I came right behind you and I said to that prospect, what does that person do for a living? If that person can't give me a pretty good explanation of what you do, then I think you failed in that qualification. And so it's a perfect example where if you don't have that expected outcome in that type of meeting, I mean, you know, Brent, sometimes it takes six months to get in front of people. It might take nine, might take a year, and so if you aren't taking absolute advantage through that expected outcome model, um, you're slowing the 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 closing
0: of a of an impactful gift by months, maybe even years. Like if you were sort of going into it with a mindset of, I need to be as efficient as possible. I need disqualify anyone in my portfolio who isn't a legitimate mutual fit would that change the way versus like qualification is so hopeful and how do i get them there versus disqualifying
1: hey great that's a fantastic point again something that i used to have in my mind and now again if i'm lucky enough to coach a a, a new individual in the industry which is really really rewarding i kind of have my 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 thumb model so if you, again just talking about qualification visits here You need to walk into that qualification and walk out with either. This is a success. This is a success. This is not a success. Might be even defined as a waste of time and money. So that's why training around qualification is is so important. Because just little phrases, um, again, that really wrap your approach in being gracefully aggressive. And I do think that you can come come with it um, out of respect for the donor as well and their time and their engagement. And you know, once you get really comfortable with the qualification visit, which is the most difficult, so it's the hardest one to get, it's the hardest one to execute. I just firmly believe that more training on the early end the pipeline development uh, moves the needle in a bigger way than necessarily training on the on the on the Far end of the pipeline because once a, once a once a prospective donor donors get engaged in what we're doing, that's the fun stuff. You know
0: that's fun. But, you but know, can, you know, can I ask? Offer, yeah, go ahead. When you when you approach a qualification visit, though, do you think about it as is this person qualified, or is it you know thumbs up, thumbs down, or in the middle, or or is the right question to ask might this person? be qualified. And what i mean by that is it is a little bit circular, right? If you walk in with the um graceful aggressiveness, the and and you view it as binary like is this person a major donor prospect or not? Let's just assume most of the time the answer is like at this very moment no they're not. Sure. However, they clearly could be. And so how do you balance like they're not ready to give versus this person is just waiting to be inspired to give and how do you because on one hand you could say everybody's just waiting to be inspired to give and spend a ton of cycles on people who aren't really qualified but at the same time if you go into um you know binary with you know are they ready or not you might miss some opportunities to really warm people up and and get them there does that make sense
1: totally totally and i think that depends on the job description of, of who's walking in you know to this meeting if, if someone is purely a major gift professional and and they have a tight portfolio, lofty expectations of, of, of major gift work, then there is a little bit more of a binary approach there, but there needs to be there needs to be the secondary strategy you know if if the answer is no, not now, you know which we get a lot, well then what is that engagement strategy? and you know Brent, you and I have had many conversations about that 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 middle ground where what if someone is not currently a major gift prospect because just to say I'm I'm a major gift professional it is my job to focus on those that 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 tight group of people who are qualified to move them forward. Well what do we do with those individuals who aren't quite certain or maybe they're five to ten years from being at that point. And I think that's I think that's an issue that our, our industry is dealing with broadly. Um, sometimes you know, that, that, that individual might get scooped up by inertia and get involved in an alumni association or, or whatnot, get involved in volunteer work that we put on. But can I sit here and tell you that we have a laser focused strategy for those people who are five to 10 years from, from having from being thumbs up when right. we don't? And if, uh, if you have that secret yeah. sauce, um, I'll, uh, I'll take you to dinner and... Uh, and well,
0: we're, we're working on a few recipes for that secret sauce. But I think what, what is clear is the issue that you've described. Across our customer base, we've got hundreds of customers, tens of billions of donor records. And what it shows us is that less than 2% of prospects are managed prospects. And even within that 2% managed pool, it can be very different from principal gift experience through you know, uh, higher volume outreach programs. And what that means is for 98% of the relationships at UConn or any institution, you have to nurture them without a human being being involved. And so I think that's where there's clearly opportunities to be able to bring more of a human to human relationship beyond just 2%, um, because it is a little circular. Like. The reason somebody might not be ready to be a major gift prospect today isn't because they don't have money it's because they haven't had that personalized attention over their life cycle and it can feel i'm sure you've had meetings where it's you know where have you been the last 20 years you know now i've made partner i've done whatever and and you show up and it doesn't mean there's still not an opportunity but wouldn't have been better to to be a partner on their journey the same way that you know your career advisor at ole miss was able to be a partner on on your journey so We're not going to solve that uh, you know overnight, but I do think there there are a lot of um, steps that can be taken and 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 we'll talk more about that in the coming months and and years for sure. I do wanna know though, like you spent a stint at UAB in the athletics development space. And I think the athletics development space is really interesting because it can be high affinity, uh, you've got fan passion, but then you've also got the philanthropic component, there can be a tit aspect. So there's a lot of creativity, but at the end of the day, it's I think one of the just high volume, more, more transactional kind of sales roles than That's maybe right. the, the gift planning, estate planning, you know, creativity structuring aspect. And so you started in a in a pretty transactional kind of role and, and, and you've obviously elevated to be in much more of the strategic role. But what do you think about when you um, recall the time early in your career, UAB, where it was maybe just more about volume? And you,
1: you're exactly right. Uh, quite, quite transactional. Definitely about volume, about cash in the door. You know, the, the way I look at it is, it was it was incredible training for me to. If you th- if you think about it as an athletic professional, that that's on a far end of the continuum from a transactional philanthropy to you know profound thoughtful philanthropy on the other end, and for me to go from. Uh, an athletic development professional and my very next role was a director of gift planning which is the opposite end of the spectrum it
0: allowed yeah, me not to, to not a lot of people not a lot of people jumping from athletics development to gift yes. planning and so i do want to yes. know about like some of the memories from uab and then uh just how different it felt and if there are any fun experiences at the beginning uh, of the journey of florida state
1: you know it was it, it was such a joy it was such a joy to do it because, uh, you know, and I love my time at, at UAB. Uh, it was it was great and shaped me into who I am today. But I remember my, you know, my first trip, you know, my first trip, my donor trip, it was to Jacksonville. And I, I can tell you the, the main person's, I'm not going to say the person's name, but I can remember that was many years ago. But I remember executing the trip. And It's a standard trip. You drive over, you have your 2 p.m., then you have your 4 p.m., then the next day you have your 8.30, you know, your 10, and your noon, and then you come home. And I remember my fellow gift planning colleague being there, like, eagerly waiting on me to get back to the office. Like, how did it go? How did it go? And I just said, wow, like, the, the ability to really, really have a thoughtful conversation about how someone wants to make a difference with philanthropy over time uh, was... It was, it, was, it was refreshing, it was wonderful, but I never, I've never i never lost that urgency that you have to have in athletic development. So it was just a great, great marriage. And, and I, I believe it was one reason why we were immensely successful in gift planning at Florida State. I mean, to a place where as I reflect on it, I think, wow, we did that. And that was certainly a team effort, uh, but it absolutely had something to do with, with uh, training and
0: previous experiences. Can I ask what immensely successful means
1: yeah i you can uh so i we were doing about fifteen million per year in planned gifts, and I think you know three years later, if we had a year under forty it was it was a down year for us in in gift planning we just we just adopted that graceful aggressive mentality and really really started to lead and it and you know, from an ACC and SEC perspective, played a real leadership role in in that community. Such a rewarding time, by far the most fun I've ever had in my career, that ACC, SEC gift planning forum, which so many will will know what I'm talking about. Such a rewarding time Uh, and gift planning is just downright fun. And I'll tell you now, I still get in the weeds for fun. If there's a hairy gift planning, and I have a, we have a wonderful gift planning executive at at UConn. He's top notch, but I still want to get involved just so I can geek
0: out with him on some of these. All right. Let's geek out. Let's geek out out right now for a minute. Then give me your like craziest gift planning, structuring packaging story that you've had. Oh gosh. Okay. I,
1: I got it. I don't even need to think about it. So this would have been, I don't know, 2014, I believe. Founder of an S Corp uh, in in Tallahassee was looking to do a, a really a transformative plan gift, uh, but he's using S Corp shares of the of the
0: company. So we had a couple of issues. There. So private, uh, it, private company, not a public company. Exactly. So if 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 you. It, 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 donating
1: shares of an S Corp is not a is not a, a tax friendly move. Um, uh, there's uh, for, for the foundation. There's there's income tax to be paid, even though if even though we're um, uh, a nonprofit. And so what we did was work with his advisor to create an ESBIT. It's an elective small business trust. You fund the S Corp shares with, the, with the, the S, you fund the escort shares into the elected small business trust. And what happens is the income from that is far more tax friendly. Um, you know, we had a whole, a whole nother issue with valuation, um, you know, having to project values and then come back and discount that because we didn't want to feel like we were, you know, stretching a little too much with, with valuation. But I believe that, you know, that, that gift was, it was eight figures. It was an eight-figure gift, probably took about six months to to wrap the entire thing up. But you know, just a just a wonderful way to use tax advisors, tax smart strategies to to help the donor and then ultimately make a transformative impact to the institution.
0: It's amazing. I, I I'm pretty sure it'll be a while before Esbit uh, gets uh, mentioned on the Raise podcast again. So, um, yeah, I, uh, but I, I think, think it's an example. You know. about- <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I think, like that is also the kind of thing where um I bet there are a lot of potential donors, and you must come across this all the time in gift planning, who might not have significant liquid assets, therefore, just assume that now is not the right time for them to give, and in reality, there are so many different ways i mean you just you know it, um, shared a a really far edge case creative structuring angle, but I think um, there are probably countless examples where it it, it goes both way, right, where, you you know, an individual prospect might not have significantly identifiable, you know, net worth in the traditional sense, but they actually do have assets. um, And so they might get deprioritized because they don't maybe look as good on paper. uh, But then at the same time, if they don't understand creative ways, they can get involved. So I I get why, um, why that has to be a, a pretty exciting role and it sounds a lot like you're playing the uh, financial advisor uh, again
1: yeah you gotta, you gotta be careful you know you always have to you know you, you really encourage them to bring their financial advisor in i would always encourage them would you allow me to call your financial advisor and just update that individual hmm. and, interesting uh, but, but you you're, you're right there are a lot of creative things that, that especially in super low interest rate environments right now I do think we're going to see a, a, an enormous uptick in charitable gift annuities in the same way that we did in 2010 and 2011 um, because it's so mutually beneficial. Um, so that's my, that's my prediction on, on, on the podcast. Uh, look up in tw- mid-2021 and charitable
0: annuities will be uh, very, very hot ticket items. Love it. Uh, this makes me think a little bit of conversations I've had in the past with a woman named Dee Mendoza, who's at uh, Dartmouth College, and she actually works out of the West Coast office in, in the Bay Area, and she's she's been really uh, creative in what she has coined pre exit philanthropy. So basically, th- this idea of yeah. instead of thinking about plan giving being at the you know later end of someone's life, you know, trying to figure out ways to do estate planning and so forth. For people that are founding companies in their 30s, in their 40s, how can you engage them much earlier? It's like um, create structures or pledges or ways for them to essentially uh, get involved philanthropically, recognizing that they aren't, uh, you know, in a in a strong liquidity position. But then also, what can the college do to actually help them on their journey? So when it comes time totally. to make that ultimate that ultimate ask, it's like you were a partner that helped get. Me access to talent or partnerships or alumni who could help us, and it's it's such a con. Like to me, it's one of those examples that every university should just be doing in in some capacity. And I think it 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 is sort of a a next gen cousin of traditional gift planning.
1: I I agree, and I've certainly read about that, and we we've done some things pretty recently at UConn uh, around that. But I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the most rewarding. Uh, you know, outcome of something like that would be uh, truly a partnership, you know, a partnership where the organization helped that individual, um, you know, whether it be finding people to invest or or finding a pipeline and, you know, ultimately they sell the, you know, sell the company and we have a, you know, predetermined sort of letter of intent that X percent would come to do something that, it's again, profoundly meaningful to that donor. So if there was ever a win-win philanthropy story
0: that I hope to be a part of at some point, it's, it's definitely that. Love it. Well, I want to uh, shift the discussion to one of the things we're really excited to talk about today, which is you're serving in a frontline leadership role at an organization that has been growing revenue and was trending in the right direction And then COVID hit. And I found a stat that said, I just heard this the other day, that on April 16th of 2020, airline traffic was 3.6% in the United States of what it was on April 16th of 2019. That April 16th apparently was the absolute trough as it relates to travel. And we all know that most of the people on airplanes are major gift officers. And so I just have to ask you, (laughs) what it was like um, coming into COVID really on a high in a a revenue uh, generating uh, high growth organization, but then also how you had to pivot your communication style, your leadership style to ensure that you were able to not only start fiscal 20 with good momentum, but end it with strong momentum. And then frankly, as we sit here in mid July, um, how you're thinking about approaching fiscal 21, recognizing that while airline volume is maybe now 10 or 20% of what it uh, was a year ago, it's unlikely that we're going to be doing significant field visits in the way that you described your first trip to yeah. Jacksonville anytime soon. And so take us through that journey, uh, yeah. leading in times of of plenty and leading in times of, of crisis. <sighs>
1: Yeah, so um, you know, as I look back, we were told March the twelfth that I think that's a Thursday. We were told that starting that following Monday we would be remote, but it was all within the narrative of a couple of weeks, and I don't remember the exact timeline. But you know, it was my thought process. Everyone's thought process was, "Well, let's lock down. Let's put our mask on, and this thing will be gone." and two or three weeks, and then we'll be back to normal, back to normal, like I kept saying that. And, and that didn't happen, right? It still hasn't happened. And you know, Brent, it took, a, it took a, an epiphany and, and I shared it with my team, apologetically, on a, on a development team call. I don't know when that happened. It probably would have been late April, I'm, I'm guessing. But what I said was, you know, I, I'm, I apologize for remaining in that framework of when we get back to normal, when we're able to come back. And I would say that all the time. And my epiphany was, I have to stop that. Um, No longer is that going to be something I want to talk about. I want to talk about moving forward. And and my my point to them was, we have to start acting, planning, and speaking like this is the way of life. we We know how to come back to our traditional you know normal way of doing business, and if that if we're if we're blessed enough to be able to do that at some point in time sooner rather than later, then we'll go back to it. But from this point forward, I want us all in the same style, the same framework of saying this is how we're gonna do it um and also um you know also stopping um anytime we would have a Zoom call, anytime we would have a development team, and I'm talking big, which was 60, 70, 80 people on these, um, just absolutely stop that, that verbiage of, I'm looking forward to getting back together. I miss seeing you because I, what I felt like th- that was, it was holding us back. And so I said, today we're embracing it and we have embraced it. And that was changing metrics. That was changing, um, that was changing interactions within our database. Um, that was me. Again, getting out of this, I wish we could go back and be in the same room. That was me telling big and bold stories about my engagement opportunities on Zoom with donors. And just really just really changing the, the, the lens through which we, we view this as this is our life. And instead of dealing with it, quote unquote, it's time to be the best in our peer group or the best in our industry at this. And I'm not saying we've gotten there, but we've, we've certainly uh, opened our eyes uh, to the fact that this is the way of life. And uh, if we don't think innovatively, then we're going to be put out of business as in any business. If you if you reject innovation, you're going to get left behind. And we've decided not to do that. And we're going to be on the front uh, front edge of this.
0: How did your team react? Because I think there's a certain element of just ambiguity is disconcerting to people. And having conviction around a path even if it's the wrong path i found to be better than yeah. lack of clarity and so i'm guessing that i also will say as a leader it's been really hard to read the room when it's a bunch of zoom boxes and and to you know get the sort of nonverbal cues and so forth that has been a huge challenge for me i'm curious how you have handled that yeah
1: so you know that's interesting that you say that because 6:30. Uh, I sent uh, sort of a year-end email to the whole development division, and it was it was just a very authentic email about my reflections. And and I'm you ask anybody I'm I am who I am. I'm authentic. There's no you know VP alter ego. I mean I'm just Jake, and I and I write that way. And and so I you know of course thank people and celebrated where we're going to end up. But then I just I just offered my own reflections. And friend, it's funny, it, it really began with that first Zoom development team meeting. Because I always pour myself into those team meetings. And you can ask any of my staff. It, it's, it's not just updates and we go home. And we incorporate TED Talks, we incorporate guest speakers, we, we have games, we do things like that. Um, and, and, and I remember that first one. And you guys, know, my wife, I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm so nervous. I, and I'm not a nervous guy, like, what if people don't engage? What if, it's, what if it's dead silence? What if I ask for a question through the chat box and there's no questions? I mean, the, the burden that I felt uh, was something that I haven't necessarily felt uh, before in my career. And it just seemed like every development team meeting because it was such a push for engagement. I just said, look, if we can't be in the same room, And I know people, I know people are dealing with stress, of course, in their professional lives, but I don't know the burden that that everyone is is feeling in their in their personal life, who they're caring for and the worries that they have for their loved ones. And so it was, I'm gonna take every development team meeting and we are gonna incorporate something that is uplifting, something that is edifying and positive and engaging. And you know, my my executive assistant, she and I would sit on the phone for an hour and strategize about what can we do next Thursday to move the morale needle. And we just came up with anything and everything we could. And it's been a project that has paid off.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about how that's paid off because on one hand, it's how do you be empathetic? How do you be authentic? But on the other hand, how do you drive excellent results in an environment that you've not worked in before? That your your team hasn't operated in before? Yeah. You change metrics, you change interactions, you change your approach to leadership. What are some of the uh, the uh, bullet points that you would um, cite as being the most meaningful? Yeah. So you know, I think when you set robust goals,
1: uh, if it's non-COVID time or especially COVID time, when you set those, I think you've got to do sort of two things around um, ambitious goal setting. And it's not about setting a number, it's the way that you do it. And so if we back up again in a normal year or pre-COVID, when, when I'm setting focus themes for divisions or departments within development, when I'm setting number goals, I'm not doing that in a vacuum. You know? and, I, and I have found that engaging all people who want to be engaged in decisions and goal setting. I'm not forcing people to be engaged in it, but it doesn't matter what level you are in the organization. If you're an assistant director in the business school and you want to have a say-so in what goals should be, it is, it's not only okay to do that, it's encouraged to do that. And so I feel like there's buy-in because a lot of people have a lot of say-so in goals. It's not consensus, and I sometimes have to make difficult decisions. But if I'm setting an ambitious goal, you have been a part of that. You have buy-in in those goals. There's one other thing I have to do, and from my perspective, and that is incentivize you to do that. You know, Uh, on that continuum of motivation, you know, there's coercion at one end and then there's monetary reward at the other. And I don't believe that the coercion side of here's your ambitious goal. And if you don't hit it, we're going to separate. I don't believe that (laughs) motivates people and I don't think it works. But on the other end, if I'm going to hold you accountable for ambitious goals that we've never necessarily thought about, I, I have to couple that with, and if you do reach these I am enthusiastically thrilled to reward you with compensation. And Brent, it's worked. It's worked. My first year here, out of we probably had 45 development professionals, six reached visit goal. Now, I wasn't here the whole year. I let things play out a little bit through half the year. Six. And, and again, set goals in a robust way. Uh, Put incentive comp into place, kind of remove toxicity from the situation, and the next and, and last year we had thirty out of the forty-five, and that's not coincidence. And it's certainly not development officers acting out of survival and out of fear. It is acting out of positive energy and positive uh, uh, monetary incentives.
0: What was it like to introduce it? Because. I think one of the, the real missed opportunities in the sector is uh, you just don't hear development officer and incentive comp in the same sentence very often. Some people get very uncomfortable with that. It can mean a lot of different things, but what balance have you been able to strike and why are you yeah. so confident that it's the right path forward?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, I, I've, I've thought about incentive comp for many, many years. It uh, wasn't necessarily a, a, a fit in my prior job, but when I came to UConn, you know, I had a, uh, I had an entrepreneurial leader, and when I when I pushed it uh, to him with some with some strength and some conviction, uh, he said, "Put it together, let's do it." And you know, it's not just about the, th- the thing is that you got to structure incentive comp in a way that moves the needle for everyone. It's not you hit a number, I pay you money. Uh, it's it's tiered. We have three tiers. Tier one is all about individual metrics. Tier two is all about team metrics. Tier three is about the entire organization's metrics. So what happens is you get people rowing in the same direction. You get people looking through the lens of unit team goals rather than individual goals. And I've always said this. If I have a development professional that has had a $2 million goal in the past, And I think about what would it mean for that individual to go from 2 million to two and a half? That's great. And that's a wonderful thing, but it is not nearly as impactful as the unit going from $10 million to $15 million. And that was a big project here, getting people to start to pay attention to unit goals, not only development officers, but deans and academic leaders too. So I had to build that into this incentive comp model. And and I believe that the three-tier structure that we have um, I believe it, it motivates people and it, it sets us up for success in the future.
0: I know that there's not, and one of the risks in this sector is that everybody now wants to know, well, what exactly is your model and can I go implement it in my institution? I'm sure that there's some, some nuance to what made sense for your context, but are there principles when you think about what percentage the incentive needs to be in order for it to be meaningful enough to motivate people, but also not so significant that it feels like too much of their 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 compensation is at risk. Uh, hey, that's a that's a great question and and a really interesting
1: debate with a with a board. You you talk to a to a an exec committee of our board. Remember, our board's made up of a lot of um, finance professionals on Wall Street and Fairfield County, Connecticut, and and so it, it was it was interesting me defending uh this incentive comp model which is is modest you know I, I it is not something where people are looking at at significant variable compensation it is something that is meaningful it's something that that an individual will feel but it certainly doesn't tip the scales into some sort of variable comp production model because I, that wouldn't sit well with me and and not that that's all that important, how I feel, I care more about how it changes human behavior with my team, and I don't think a model like that would would change it for the positive.
0: And so it sounds like you have, uh, through a combination of creative incentives, clearer expectations, goal setting, removing toxicity, been able to really turn around performance across the team. As you think about fiscal 21, it's got to be somewhat challenging, though, because all of that behavior change and uh, performance improvement was was in the old way of doing our work yeah, and so when you think yeah. about this zoom only world that we're in where do you see things going over the next year and have you had to further adjust uh, either goals or compensation etc yeah you know brent i i i don't know
1: and i don't think anyone knows you know what what this is going to look like because you know it's not just the the virtual model of communication it's what really has been the the effect on the economy on the job market you know how will the market how will the stock market respond after the enormous sell off and now this this rebound that you know we don't we're not quite sure what's behind that rebound so there are a lot of unemployment rate a lot of factors here that we we don't know you know i i would say that I'm, I have encouraged and will my, encourage my team to just jump head first in. You know, when, when there are doubts and confidence of how really am I going to be able to engage this person or this couple or this family by Zoom, you know, it's all we got right now. So be authentic, be yourself. You know, I would say, you know, I, I, I for one, when I have my interactions with donors this, this coming fiscal year, I, I'll probably say, you know, I'd love to be able to engage you in the following way and have lunch with your student and X, Y, and Z. But I'm not if I'm not able to do that, I'll let them know. Uh, maybe asking them questions about, how, you know, how how can we demonstrate impact better? You know, in this in this virtual uh, world, you know, how 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 can how can you be engaged? You know, I think this is going to be a dance that that we that the donors and the organizations dance together. Uh, and, you know, all we can do is, is keep a positive outlook, stay innovative in the way we're thinking, stay true to goals. I'm not reducing goals. I'm not lowering goals this year. They'll be robust. They'll be higher than they were last year. Stick together, create a high morale shop. And, you know, maybe we talk again on 720 or 21 and, and hopefully
0: we've, we've surpassed goals at that point as well. I think we have adjusted. And we have all started to realize there are ways we can be more efficient. And so I am optimistic that even in our ability to engage with each other, your staff's ability to engage with your donors, everybody has more time. We are all a Zoom link away. And while it's not maybe quite as uh, fulfilling always as being together in person, we can just do a whole lot more of it than the itinerary that you described the first time you drove over to Jacksonville. And, And instead of having... Four or five visits in a two-day period and feeling like that's a pretty good efficient middle-of-the-plate trip you might be able to have 20 conversations or 10 conversations in the same amount of time at a radically lower cost and we might find out that we are able to advance the philanthropic impact that our donors still want to have whether it's in person or over zoom
1: i totally agree i totally agree quantity will increase and you know, I just think it's it's our job to make sure that, that quality uh, remains quality. Right. And and that's and I think the quality you know,
0: in some cases might be able to get even better because we are gonna be able to be creative and you're gonna be able to invite a dean to join you in a conversation with a donor when the Dean never could have traveled to actually do the field visit with you. So from a donor experience perspective, it might actually be even better than just seeing Jake one-on-one, no offense. It's how do we start to make that whole experience more complete? Maybe presidents of universities can be engaged in in stewardship and donor uh, touch points because they're only a Zoom link away instead of trying to navigate the president's schedule to to go do a trip to Los Angeles or wherever it might be. So I, I, I am optimistic. That we're going to be able to scale really compelling experiences to a broader group of people. Love it. Great. Well, Jake, I want to be conscious of time, and and I uh, just can't thank you enough for, you know, sharing uh, your journey professionally at UConn over the last year, the pivots you've had to make. No doubt, when we catch up on uh, July twentieth of twenty twenty one, that we'll have all kinds of new experiences and perspective, but. Uh, what I love about our conversations is you always have a great sense of optimism. Uh, and I think that same just um, expected outcome uh, approach, uh, you, you know, can, can serve us all really well here in the next year. Well, thank, thanks for having me
1: on. I, I always, always enjoy catching up with you, Brent. Look forward to catching up with you soon. And um,
0: uh, I'm, I'm here to help in any way. All right. Signing off with Jake Lemon. Senior Vice President of Development for the Yukon Foundation. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, Brent. Talk soon.